Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Halistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Meryn Somerset Webb. Meryn is editor-in-chief of Money Week, the best-selling financial magazine in the UK. She is also a contributing editor to and weekly columnist for the Financial Times. She has just published her second book, Share Power, How Ordinary People Can Change the Way That Capitalism Works and Make Money Too. Now, in this podcast interview, we talk about share ownership. We talk about the fund industry. Are they doing a good job for share owners? And we talk about the world of business and how the financial services industry is likely to change as a result of more women investing their money. To finish up, Merrin talks about how anyone can become an active share owner. I hope you enjoyed this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Merrin, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As I was just saying, I've been listening to your book over the last week and thoroughly enjoying it. So I can't wait to talk about it in detail. But before we do that, I'd love it if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically your journey to where you are today. And I'm curious about where your interest in money and the economy and financial markets has come from. Well, I can tell you where it came from. It came from, you know how people talk about inspirational teachers and having a teacher who really makes the subject come alive. I had a wonderful economics teacher at school when I was doing my A-levels who taught economics very much as a behavioral science. There was very little econometrics, very little mathematics in his teaching. It was all about how people behave and how you can expect people to behave and how incentives drive people to behave. And that, and I found his classes fascinating. And so I went on to do economics at university, where I was horribly disappointed to find that the university economics course is basically an advanced mathematics course, jammed full of econometrics and the whole idea of how do people behave and how should we expect them to behave and how can we incentivize them to behave better, et cetera. And so it's slightly gone out the window and everything was mathematical formulas. And I found it A, rather difficult and B, incredibly boring. And so I changed my degree to history. And in that, I did a lot of economic history, which again is about we uh, arrange things like this and this is what happens. So very much more a, a sort of behavioral bent on a subject I was already very interested in. I graduated into a recession and I went to work in Japan. And then I got a scholarship learning Japanese and went back to Japan where I started working in media. And we got jobs differently in the old days. I met a man who was looking to hire someone to his equity sales team in Tokyo and I joined that team and then really developed my interest in the stock market and how that reflected the economy and how the economy reflected the stock market because you know they're very interchanged and more and more as the years go by they become more and more intertwined. And after that, when I came back from Tokyo, I started doing a bit of writing and then launched Money Week with John Connell, who is the original founder of the week, and he thought it'd be good to do something money orientated. It was like back in the great dot-com bubble and everyone was so interested in money and market and hordes of information pouring out from everywhere. Every newspaper had a special supplement on textiles, et cetera. And we felt that there was an overwhelming amount of really kind of rubbish information 
And we wanted to create a magazine that could curate that information down for the ordinary investor. That's what we did. And it's been a phenomenal success. It's now the best-selling financial magazine in the UK. I'm not going to pretend it wasn't a bumpy ride, by the way. That was a bumpy ride. But here we are today, and I'm still editor-in-chief of that magazine. And I am also now a columnist at the FT. I did have a column at the Sunday Times, moved to the FT a decade or so ago, and I am still there. And I do various other things along the way. I am a non-executive director of a couple of investment trusts. So that is also fascinating. And a non-executive director of a wealth management firm called Net Wealth, which, by the way, is specifically attractive to women. It's a very high level of female clients. I'd love to start talking about share ownership. In the UK, share ownership is widespread and it's building. How have we become a nation of share owners? And what does being a share owner give you the ability to do in the UK and, and more globally? There was a time back in the 50s, 60s, where a lot of the stock market in the UK was owned by individuals, but owned by very, very few individuals. Only 3% of the population owned shares. They just owned a lot of shares. Now, today, almost everybody in work in the UK owns shares. And that is because of our amazing, and it is amazing, pension auto-enrollment system. So if you're in work and you're earning over a, a very small amount, you are automatically enrolled into a pension scheme with your employer. Now, you can opt out of that if you want, but you know how lazy we all are when it comes to admin. And that means that everybody effectively owns shares because a pension is simply a wrapper inside which investments are placed. And in the main, particularly if you're younger, those investments will be equities. So there's that, which is something that I would say a majority of people do not understand they have. They may understand they have a pension, but they don't understand necessarily that that means that they're equity holders and that they hold small amounts of most of the big companies in the UK, which when you think about it is incredibly exciting. It's just something people don't know. Outside that, of course, we also have our ISA system. So there's you know, nearly 3 million people who have stock and share ISA in the UK, which means that they're saving money into the ISA wrapper and investing inside that. And then, of course, millions of people have self-invested personal pensions, which, again, they will have equities inside. So we're now in a situation where, one way or another, the majority of people in the UK will own shares. And this is a huge change, a huge change. And one that I don't think it is really fully understood. Back to your point about auto-enrollment, I think you need to be making over £10,000 a year. Is that right? To be auto-enrolled in the pension? Yeah, that's right. That takes us to over 75% of the workforce. Right. But it's women who predominantly work part-time and who don't earn, let's say you don't earn the, to the £10,000, you don't get the auto-enrollment, correct? And I think the government potentially are looking into that. Yeah, that's under discussion and I suspect it will change, but we will see. Okay. So thank you for that. And we saw a surge in new retail investors during the pandemic with more women opening new accounts as well and, and investing too, which is music to my ears. The pandemic gave the whole idea of investing this huge new boost. You had this wonderful sudden match of people with an awful lot of spare time, possibly too much spare time, an awful lot of spare time, and in a large number of cases, significantly more free cash than they would have had in the past in that, again, the majority of people did not see their income fall during the pandemic, or certainly didn't see it fall very much, but they did see their expenses fall very significantly. And that meant that a lot of people ended up with much more money in their bank accounts every month than they did pre-pandemic. Unfortunately, this is not a dynamic that's going to continue, but it was one that for a while gave people, well, I've got this free time, I've got this money, what am I going to do with it? 
And of course, yeah. the stock market, instead of collapsing and stayed collapsed, did all sorts of exciting things, rebounding all over the place, making people small fortunes. So it's an incredibly interactive environment. And millions of people around the world turned to the stock market to a lot of them to keep themselves busy, a lot of them as a new hobby, and a lot of them a significant minority, I think, to look at it and understand how to build long-term wealth. So that was, a, I think, a really exciting change. And as you say, it was particularly exciting because it was something that really brought women in. So Nutmeg, which is one of the online wealth managers, very popular, they said that in 2020, 40% of their new investors were women. Now, you might say, well, that's still less than half, but it's a big leap from the normal numbers when you see many fewer women investing outside the pension system. So in the UK, about 17, 18% of men hold the stock and shares ISA and only about 10% of women do. So there is that gap there. And there is a gap that we've begun to see closing during the pandemic. And I'm really hoping that it will stay closed. It's encouraging. And I think it's forcing the narrative that's so negative around women and money and investing to change. It's incredibly empowering. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd love to start talking about your book. You've recently published Share Power, How Ordinary People Can Change the Way That Capitalism Works and Make Money Too. Can you explain the main premise of your book? Um, I wrote it because I'm a great believer in shareholder democracy, well, and democracy in general, right? And we talked earlier about the way that people have come into the stock market and the way people are auto-enrolled into pensions and the way they're uncertain about what they own inside that pension. And the book is really about the power that should come with holding shares. So every share that you own, it comes with a vote, right? But most of us don't have access to the votes. We don't even know we have the votes. But then if we did know, it's very hard to get access to them. So let's say you hold an individual share on an investing platform, like Hargreaves Lansdowne or Interactive Investor or something like that. You hold shares in Marks and Spencers or in Shell or in BP. And you should be entitled to vote every share. You should be entitled to get the annual report. You should be entitled to go to their annual general meeting and then raise a resolution or, or vote on other people's resolutions. But it's not particularly easy to do, except for an interactive investor, by the way, where it's now becoming increasingly easier to put a lot of work into this. And you now opt out rather than opt in. So it's much easier there. And the other platforms, it's still difficult. You have to telephone, fill in forms. Uh, until relatively recently, you had to pay to get your votes. Uh, so it was complicated and difficult. So not very many people vote. But that's still minor compared to the fund management problem. So most of us now, we don't own individual shares. 30, 40 years ago, everyone owned individual shares. You know, they knew companies that they owned, uh, they knew what they did, they understood their brands, and they understood that they held individual shares in those companies. They had bits of paper telling them that that's what they owned. And if you bought or sold, you had to post the bits of paper in and out, et cetera. Now, the majority of people, they don't own shares directly. They own units in big funds, huge funds, mostly run by the really big fund managers, BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, are enormous fund management companies. BlackRock manages something like $10 trillion worldwide. We give them the money, they put it into their funds, they invest it. And what that does is it gives them our votes. So in investing, we effectively delegate all our power to them. It's a bit like a general election, right? Mm -hmm. You choose your party, you vote for them, and then you say, all right, you go away and do your stuff. But when there's a general election, we know we're doing that. We know what we're doing, and we know we're choosing someone for four years to make our decisions for us. When we put our money into a fund, I don't think we're fully aware of what we've done. And certainly, 
the big fund management companies aren't coming back to us and saying yeah, every couple of years and saying, how do you feel about this? And how do you feel about gender equality? And how do you feel about diversity on boards? And how do you feel about these oil companies? Do you think that in order to make sure the world doesn't run out of energy, we should keep investing in exploration? Or do you think that in order to mitigate climate change, we should definitely not invest in exploration? These are the kinds of questions that you think, well, that's my money, my shares, my votes. Someone is voting those shares for me. Wouldn't it be great if they asked me? And so that's the basic premise that we've given away our power. But it's important, I think, because over the last couple of decades, we've seen this kind of disconnect between people and companies and a turning against capitalism. So if you ask a young person in particular, if they're a capitalist, they'd be horrified, horrified by the idea because capitalism is evil and dirty and that they would much prefer to consider themselves to be socialists. And that, you know, there's some good reason for that, but mostly awful reason for that, because we know that socialism generally leads to misery. There is no example of a non-miserable socialist system, but there are many, many, many examples of non-miserable capitalist systems. So when I was looking at this, I was thinking, well, A, we should have this power, but B, if we can help people understand that They are part of the system. They own part of this system. And by owning part of the system, they should have a level of control over the system. Can we start changing the relationship here? And can we start saying to people, do you know what? There's lots of stuff you don't like about the way the system works. I get that. And we see it all around us, the stuff that isn't working properly. There is a way to fix that. And you can use the power you already have to be part of fixing that. So it's just about taking the system that we already have, which, by the way, is a very good system and works very well with how humans behave and with human nature. We're natural traders. We're natural accumulators. This works for us, but it's not perfect without full participation. And this is a way to bring people into a higher level of participation in the economy. It's really worrying that the average share owner We invest our money into these funds, and yet we have so little transparency, so little visibility about how they're representing us. How do they even know what we think, what we want? Why have they made next to no effort to be transparent? Historically, there's been no need to, in that the fund management industry has had an explosive level of growth over the last decade. As I say, the world moves much more slowly than one thinks in lots of ways. And the whole dynamic of the majority of the world's money being held by fund management companies and voted on by fund management companies. You know, it's relatively new, but we're now at a point where some 40, 50% of global assets are held by fund management companies, held by institutions, not held by individuals. And so we're at a point, very much a tipping point, where they have to step up the plate and use this responsibility wisely. And we've seen them beginning to do that or beginning to recognize that they should do, should I say, with their endless talk about ESG investing, about ESG overlays on their funds, ESG being environmental, social and governance, the idea that you should take all those factors into account when you invest. Now, we hear an awful lot about this, and particularly from the likes of BlackRock, except for Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, is very big on ESG, and he writes letters every year explaining to the world how he expects the companies in which BlackRock invests to behave uh, with an ESG overlay, et cetera. But what he has been missing is A, that's a very difficult and complicated thing to do. And B, it's not actually his job or indeed his right to tell every company in the world how to behave. It's our job. He just represents us. They're our shares, our votes. And instead of standing up and telling everybody and all the companies how they should run themselves and what they should do, he should be saying, hang on a tick. We've got all these votes. We're going to be part of this company. I'm just going to go and ask the end owners 
what it is that they want and I'll come back and let you know. That's the way it should work, right? Absolutely. It's igniting that dialogue, that two-way conversation between the share owner and the fund manager. Hmm. And there's been a gap in the timeline when this hasn't been possible, right? So right. When, we, when we first started investing in funds in this volume, the technology wasn't necessarily available for the fund management companies to easily and cheaply get information from us about how we would like to vote. So 10 years ago, I couldn't really have written this book because I wouldn't have been able to say at the end, and this is possible and we should do this because it wasn't really. But it is now a technology more than exists for the fund managers to ask us what it is that we want and maybe not to do that initially with any obligation to use our votes exactly as we want because that can be complicated. But certainly to get a view from us at the moment, and it's not long before it'd be more than possible to ask for us what you might call a look-through votes so that the way they voted in AGM is divided up based on which parts of their client base want what. Yeah. It's possible now, and that's the difference. And that's why this was a good time to write this book. And interestingly, in his latest letter to shareholders last week, actually, Larry Fink did say in the aside at the end that one of the things that they're working on is ways in which they can return power to the beneficial owners of equities. Mm. I'd like to pick up on a point that you made in the book, and you've just alluded to there, this concept of whether companies have a purpose and and should they have a social responsibility. Mm. How do you differentiate between social responsibility versus, say, the climate emergency, the climate crisis that we're in now, and gender diverse leadership where there may be social benefit or responsibility, but also there's a very, very real and financial benefit to that too. One of the points that I make in the book is that it doesn't really matter what I think. And it doesn't really matter what Larry Fink thinks. The key point here is that everyone should be allowed to have their say. What I would say is that there's been a big shift over the last decade away from shareholder capitalism towards stakeholder capitalism. And shareholder capitalism is a, a very simple thing, whereby we say that the main aim of a company is to make money and to return that money to shareholders. And that having one core purpose, that is vital, because if you start fiddling around with the targets that you give managers, you'll end up diluting what a company can and can't do. There's also this, not necessarily a friction, but a difference sometimes between what management want and what shareholders want. If a company is very big, it has many shareholders, you can often find that instead of the shareholders controlling the company, the managers effectively control the company. They have in the end all the benefits of ownership, the power over how the company is run. So if you want to make sure that they run the company as you want them to, You need to give them one clear metric to focus on. And if you make that making money and returning it to shareholders, everything is very simple and straightforward and historically has worked pretty well, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the new view is that it's not enough and that we should focus much more on stakeholders, on the other people that a company affects as it goes about its daily business. So its suppliers, its employees, the community around it, the environment, et cetera, all these stakeholders. So people look at these and they say, these things are in conflict. 
shareholder capitalism and stakeholder capitalism are different and stakeholder capitalism is better because it means that we're caring about things beyond money. I would say that they're kind of the same thing because these days, certainly in the UK, almost all stakeholders are also shareholders. We're the same people. And I'd also say that effective long-term shareholder capitalism does care for its stakeholders. So you don't last a long time as a company if you're really mean to your suppliers. So go back to the beginning of the pandemic when there was too much supply of everything and to now when there is not enough supply of anything. Who do you think are the companies right now who are getting the supply that they can sell on and continue to make money from? It's the people who at the beginning of the pandemic, instead of saying to their suppliers, do you know what, sort of take the hit on that. I'm not buying any of your crap. All the ones who said, do you know what, we've got a good relationship here. We've been working together a while. I understand that you're hurting. I'm hurting too. Let's share the pain. I'll buy that stuff. We'll get rid of it later. Those are the companies that are successful right now today who are getting the supply in to take it to market. So these things are not in any way mutually exclusive. That fully, fully connected, a successful company that focuses on its shareholders and focuses on making money over the long term is by default, by default, going to be focusing on its stakeholders. Yeah. Now, we get more complicated and we move into things like the business you were just talking about of gender diversity, leadership level, and the stipulations around climate change, etc. Now, these are things where we can say, well, do we really know that it's better for a company to have a diverse board or not? We think we do. Right, we really do think we do. There's a reasonable amount of evidence, but it's quite short term. And do we think that a company that focuses explicitly on, say, net zero, as opposed to over just not being a polluter, do we know that there's financial outperformance embedded in there or not? And the truth is that we don't. We have a reasonable amount of data, reasonable amount of evidence, but it's short term. And so far, we haven't really felt the costs. So let me, for example, take you back to oil companies, which we were discussing earlier. Now, we all want to get rid of fossil fuels, right? I don't think there's anyone in the world who you could pin down and say, would you prefer to always have fossil fuels or would you prefer to find a cheap, clean source of renewable energy? Everyone's going to go for a cheap, clean, renewable energy. But that's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take several decades, maybe more than several decades. And it may be the case that it is never going to be possible to run our economy without a degree of fossil fuels, which we need for various things to do with processing the metals. You know, for example, you need fossil fuels to work with the materials that make a blade for a turbine. We don't know that we're ever going to be able to get rid of fossil fuels. One thing we do know is at the moment, we still need a lot of oil, a lot. So if we ask big oil companies to stop exploring, to stop investing, to stop producing, what happens? We may feel that we've done really well on the E of ESG, but what have we done with the S of ESG, with maintaining people's living standards, with bringing people in emerging companies up the same kind of living standards as us, in reducing global poverty, in keeping the global food supply going, because as you know, that's very reliant on fertilizers, which in turn can be reliant on petrochemicals. So this is not simple. And anyone who pretends it's simple and just wibbles away about ESG this and ESG that is not concentrating. It's complicated, it's difficult, and that's one of the reasons why I think that we should all participate in these decisions. The concern I have, though, is that you can see how 
it is so complicated and investors or board of directors can very easily say, look, we just can't solve this overnight. And this is just too hard to think about right now. We have other very important business priorities. So we're not going to focus on this gender diversity stuff. Yes, there's data out there, but as you say, potentially inconclusive. So let's not worry about it for now. Let's just push it to one side. And, and same with fund managers. And the pace of change is very, very slow. Again, specifically, if I think about gender diversity, women on boards, diversity on boards, it's extremely slow, specifically about executive positions, because that is really where the key decision-making is made and, and where the control of the company lies. And we know how desperately we need diversity of thought in companies and the decision-making needs to reflect the consumer base. And at the moment, it, it doesn't. It is true. We definitely need more diversity of thought on boards. But I would say, I mean, I don't think I've ever spoken in the last five years to a board that isn't focused on that. Mm -hmm. So it may be one of those things that looks slow and suddenly gets fast because a lot of it is about, as, as you know, about pipelines of people, yeah. all the pipelines of people coming through. You can start talking about how much you want to have 50% of your board female, but starting to do that means building a pipeline and that can take 15, 20 years. So I'm more optimistic than you. I sort of feel this is very underway and you'll suddenly wake up one morning and see that there's been significant change. Yeah, no, I, I hope so. I remember joining the workforce, I was in my 20s, so over 20 years ago now. And this was uh, a topic of conversation. And I was convinced that by the time I got to my 40s, this would no longer be a problem, nor would the gender pay gap be a problem. And, you know, here we are. And I, I think we do need to keep up the momentum and accelerate the pace of change. Mm. But I know there are lots of amazing people doing amazing work. And there are a lot of great companies that are taking this very seriously. And also great to see activist investors, institutional investors that are now putting pressure on boards, shaking up boards to make sure that there are women on boards. And they are. But again, you can run into a problem there, which is the fund management companies can be very formulaic in this. So again, who's on a board and who isn't on a board is a very nuanced business. So mm -hmm. let's say that you take a good-sized tech company based in the Midlands somewhere and say, nah, but all your engineers are men. And they can say, well, that's because everyone doing an engineering course at universities in the Midlands 20 years ago was a man. Mm. And so, yeah, not much we can do about that. But a fund management voting algorithm will put that down as a negative. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. All I'm saying is that, again, this stuff is, is quite nuanced. And so if you're going to do this as a fund management company, if you're going to say, I'm going to use the votes of all my clients to vote on this stuff, do you have a responsibility to do it in a very careful and nuanced way? And more importantly, do you have a responsibility to ask the end users what they think? And, you know, there's a, a great little company out there at the moment called Tumilo, which has software that allows fund management companies to do this. And LNG is using it. That's very impressive. So as a client, you can log on and you can see what votes are coming up with any of the companies that are held in any of your portfolios. And then you can express a preference as to how you'd like your vote to be used. And so on the website, you can see the arguments on both sides. And then you can express your preference. And then the fund management company can collate all that information. And as yet, they're not guaranteeing to use your vote in the way that you'd like it to. But certainly they can take that information away and say, well, oh, God, we thought people thought this, but actually maybe it think this. And we should take that into account. So, you know, this is already possible. And what would be really useful is to get feedback then. So once you let them know what you think, you cast your vote, obviously you've, you've reviewed all the information, 
you know what decision-making process they've gone through or what's happened as a result to get to a point where they've put a certain view forward. And that is exactly what happens. They vote and then they come back and they'll explain why they voted, how they did vote on the website. It's really interesting. I'd like to shift gears and and talk about women investors a little bit more specifically and, and the fact that women's wealth is growing. And I'm sure you're familiar with this statistic, Meryn, that by 2025, women will own 60% of private wealth in the UK. More women are investing in the stock market, and I think that will continue to grow. What does this mean for businesses and institutional investors in your view? It depends on how women own this wealth or how they come by this wealth and how they then engage with the industry. If all the things that we've just been talking about happen, if they come about, if people continue to want to engage with the way the corporate world works, and we find that, as you say, the majority of wealth is owned by women, then we may see a change in the way the corporate world behaves as it shifts to reflect the requirements of its owners. Uh, But I honestly don't know. I mean, there is a view that women are much more careful investors than men, that they do have much more of an ESG overlay when they're thinking about when and how to invest in men. And that does seem to be borne out in surveys, et cetera, when we we ask people if they want to invest according to their values is something that that women much more often say that they, they put their values ahead of returns. And if all that is true, then yes, we will see a change in the way that women ask their fund managers to invest. And that may be a good thing in that it may lead to more careful companies, more aware of stakeholders, or it may, as the other thing I try and bring out in the book, it may be a bad thing because we end up asking companies to do too much, to not just make money, but to be the savior of the environment and the savior of their communities and the front runner for diversity issues and social issues, which possibly should be the preserve of government. So it's very difficult to say, A, will this happen? I suspect it might. And B, will it end up being a positive or possibly a negative force? You know, all of our assumptions are that this is a positive force. But again, we can't actually know that yet. It's true. We don't know that. But I think what's really exciting is that we are essentially redefining what a company does, what it's responsible for, and we're evolving our framework in terms of how we see the world, each other, business transactions, and so on. And and I think we've got to a crisis point, haven't we? Climate emergency is a crisis point. We're waking up to just how bad things can get if we don't do anything. And this is why we're asking these questions now. And the business world, the money world, you know, the financial world, it needs people who have a different view, a different take on things. It's not just about a transaction. It's about the impact that that transaction has on everyone else. And if we maybe thought about that and the world more holistically, we could prevent the climate crisis. Some of these things that we get very excited about, I do, you do, you know, we can vote on this, we can vote on that. Might it just be that what we're doing is, is hampering the ability of as our companies to operate internationally? And what we should be doing is putting huge pressure on Western governments to put more pressure on the Chinese government to reduce their emissions. So it's not that there's any harm in asking a UK company to think more carefully about their supply line. It's just that focusing on that, maybe focusing on something that can only have a very minor effect when it's the things that our governments do 
that could have very major effects. So sometimes when we talk about ESG, when we talk about the way we want companies behave, I feel like we might be letting ourselves get a little distracted from the way governments should behave. And maybe this is part of the education, isn't it, Maren, to make it clear, which is why we need to be having these conversations. Where do we draw the line? Where do we need to be putting a lot more pressure on governments versus companies? And one of the reasons we need more diversity in fund management, on the board of directors, et cetera, of these companies is so that we have people who have a very different view, different experiences. They can ask different questions so we can start thinking about doing things differently, which should hopefully have a better impact on things overall. If we have the same group of people making the same decisions, working in the same way, we're going to keep getting the same results. And that's what this is all about, trying to change that. And so introducing women into the mix is just another way of saying, how do we get more diversity of thought? How do we get people to think differently overall about how we do things and changing the status quo, really? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The diversity of thought is the only way you get different results. I'd love to move on to talk about a specific example. You've alluded to it already, Marin. So let's say I'm an investor in Vodafone or Shell. I'm not an investor in either of those companies, but let's say I was, and I'm going to use the same example, which I'm so passionate about. I'd like to see more women on the executive board. What steps can I take to become an active shareholder? Well, you need to hold the shares individually for starters. There's no point in just having them held in a portfolio inside a big fund. So you want to own those shares and you want to own them on a platform probably. And then you have the right to vote. You have the right to go to the AGM. You have the right to get the annual report. So you need to use those votes. You can go to the AGM and you can ask questions. You can go to some of the pressure groups that already exist, like uh, Share Action, for example, who would help you put together a resolution of shares that they own so that you can ask the company to do something specific and force a vote on it at the AGM. So there are lots of different ways that you can put pressure on companies once you are a shareholder and aware that you're a shareholder. You can even just write to them, I'm a shareholder and I feel this. And if you hold your shares, say, inside a fund, which most people do, it's harder because you have no direct power, should have, but you don't. But you should be writing to your fund manager saying, I feel very strongly about this. What are you doing about it? How are you using my vote? How are you engaging with the company? Have you been in for a meeting on this? What have you told them about it? Have you given them any targets or deadlines on this matter? I want to know about it. And you might as well, while you're at it, add a little addendum to your letter saying, and by the way, I'd like to be able to use my vote myself. What are you doing about that? And so let's say I go on Interactive Investor, because I think you've used that example, Mm -hmm. and I buy a few Vodafone shares. What happens next? How do I find out about voting? Interactive Investor will let you know when there are votes coming up. So that's easy. And most platforms will have various information services that allow you to know. But other platforms will make you go through an administration process to get your hands on your vote, whereas Interactive Investor have already opted you in. So it's not complicated if you want to do it. But most people, as I said, they're not really aware that they can do it. And there's an admin barrier and nothing stops people faster than an admin barrier, does it? Who decides what is actually voted on in the AGM? Well, there's lots of standard things that the board will have decided and they'll put out resolutions that uh, you know, they expect people to just vote through re-electing directors, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But shareholders can also put up their own resolutions that can then be voted on. Directors decide and the shareholders decide. 
but most often it's the directors. A good way to get your point across is to go to the AGM and ask questions. You know, and in the old days, when people had individual shares and they knew they had individual shares, one of the things that they did was they would go to, share, go to the AGMs and generally the harass the directors, uh, which is a very effective way of doing it. But AGMs used to be a different thing. You know, you could go along, you have a cup of coffee and a biscuit and a wonderful opportunity to ask questions that directors didn't like. And there were groups of people who absolutely loved that, people who had full-time hobbies of going around AGMs and harassing directors. Maybe we need a little bit more of that today. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so today, I'm guessing AGMs are probably virtual. So if I own a couple of shares of Vodafone, can I join the AGM? Yes, you can. I mean, the AGMs have gone virtual, but I think they'll go back to physical. There's a pushback against solely virtual AGMs. But hopefully over time, you'll get some kind of hybrid of AGMs so that you can go physically if you want to, if you enjoy harassing people in person. But also having them virtually does allow many, many more shareholders to come and allows people who, who aren't prepared to travel or can't travel, et cetera, to participate in the AGM as well. So actually, well, at the beginning of the pandemic, when AGMs went virtual, I was very, very unimpressed. I'm now beginning to see that a hybrid system would actually be incredibly inclusive. I would like that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And if you can't, for whatever reason, attend virtually or in person, can you have somebody ask your yeah, question? you can proxy vote. You can proxy vote via your platform, et cetera. That's easily done voting in advance. It's like pre-bidding on an auction. Well, there you go. There's no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> There's no excuse. So you, know, you can use some of the power that you should have already, but the majority of that power is still tied up in the fund management companies and needs to be sort of crowbarred out of them. Mary, thank you. You've shared so much and, and there's just so much there. And I feel like we could talk for hours. I hope that this conversation sparks listeners to get more curious and get involved. And I'm certainly going to look up the AGMs now that I can uh, join in on <laughs> questions. Good. Excellent. I've got one convert. I'm that power will, will bring me many more converts, but you're an excellent start. <laughs> 100%. So my last question, what are your final words to women investors who want to become much more active or activist even? in helping to build the world they want to see by voting with their money or exercising their vote. Check out where you have your shares. Vote whenever you possibly can. If you hold your shares via a fund manager, write to that fund manager and ask them if they're going to start using any of the systems that allow you to express your view. And if they say no, ask them why not. It's an important question. Why not? Marion, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.